Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. joined by Len Casper, play-by-play for the Chicago Cubs. Len, thank you so much for the time. You know Ryan well. We've probably talked some point in time in the past, but uh, good to talk with you. What are you doing to kill some time right now? Great to be with you guys. Uh, a lot of my time has been spent doing a lot of different podcasts. I was on the Sabercast with Rob Nyer the other night, uh, Marquee Sports Network, uh, in its first year as the new Cubs television home. Uh, is producing uh, some shows, so I've been doing a lot of that and uh, trying to, you know, stay in shape physically. And I think mentally is the tricky part when you wake up every day, especially being used to a routine like I am of being at the ballpark this time of year, kind of remembering, oh yeah, there's nothing going on right now. So try to be a good dad, a good husband, a good member of the community, and uh, keep our distance socially and hope this thing goes faster than uh, than it might. Hey, Len, uh, so you grew up uh, in the Detroit area, a Tigers fan, I presume, yeah? I grew up in mid-Michigan, yeah, and I, I was a, a Tiger fan growing up. So I've, I've got to ask you about the 1984 team. Uh, really interesting because if you're born in 71, you were 13 when that happened, which to me is the perfect time to see your team win a World Series. But um, what I find most interesting about that season is Willie Hernandez, who won the uh, Cy Young Award and the MVP. And uh, if you look at that season now, especially with all the numbers that we have and some of the ones that um, that I'll occasionally even send you, it, it doesn't look like Willie Hernandez should have won either one of those awards. So are, are you able to take a look at that, uh, remove the nostalgia of it and then say maybe objectively that uh, I would say Cal Ricken Jr. should have won MVP and um, maybe Dave Stibe should have won the uh, Cy Young Award. But um, do you think Hernandez should have gotten both of those awards? I agree with you. Uh, I, I think uh, Hernandez had a great year uh, for the Tigers, but I, I'm always a little leery of a relief pitcher winning both awards. Uh, I know it has happened. I think Dennis Eckersley did it once in the 90s. Um, but, you know, I, I think you have to have a transcendent year and probably need to be a starting pitcher uh, to win uh, both uh, the Cy Young and the MVP. Um, I'm not sure Hernandez was the most valuable player on that team. I think it was a team of a lot of guys who had, if not career years, had one of the best years they've had. And uh, you might have a tough time picking the MVP off that club. I mean, up the middle, they were unbelievable. Uh, when you think of Lance Parrish behind the plate, Jack Morris 
on the mound, Trammell, Whitaker, second and uh, or short and second, and then Chet Lemon in center. Those guys were all the starters for the American League at Candlestick Park in the uh, All-Star game. That's really hard to beat. But uh, in the end, I think back in those times in particular, uh, you had to win unless you're Andre Dawson and hit 49 homers in 87 on a last-place team. You generally had to be on a really good club uh, to win those big awards, and I think that's why it happened. Yeah, I think something else that went along with that is there was a fascination with the relief pitcher and the closer because it wasn't really a thing until the 80s. But um, you brought up uh, Trammell and Whitaker, and I think in 2018, a long-time injustice was made right, and Alan Trammell was put into the Hall of Fame. But there's still, in my opinion, a gaping hole having Whitaker out, who by many of the numbers was just as good, if not a little bit better, than, um, than Trammell was. Uh, what do you think it's going to take to get him? I, obviously, the Veterans Committee into the Hall of Fame, but do you think the fact that Trammell's in there is going to help um, uh, Whitaker's case? You know, it, it could help and maybe hurt. Um, as, a, as a Cubs broadcaster uh, and understanding Cubs history, uh, I think one of the reasons Ron Santo, and now we look back at, at Ronnie's career, and, and he's a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Unfortunately, he got in after uh, he passed away, and I think that was a huge injustice that they finally rectified with a veterans committee. But one of the issues Ronnie had was the Cubs didn't actually make the postseason that year, and they already had three Hall of Famers on that club, right, in uh, Billy Williams, Fergie Jenkins, and Ernie Banks. And I think what tends to happen is guys get penalized for being on a club with multiple Hall of Famers. So now Jack Morris uh, and Alan Trammell are in that potentially could help Lou, but it might hurt him. I think the other thing that hurts him is that he made everything look so easy, and he you know, was not a, a real boisterous guy in the media, and he didn't self-promote a whole lot. Now, Trammell didn't either, but um, you know, I, I think Lou's career was severely underrated, as you said. I think Trammell, the reason it took him so long to get in, uh, it's kind of the Tim Raines disease, right? Because Raines was only the second greatest leadoff hitter of all time <laughs> behind Ricky Anderson. He somehow was penalized for it, and I think Tram was hurt by the fact that at the beginning of his career was uh, Ozzie Smith, middle of his career was Cal Ripken, and at the end of his career was Barry Larkin. And I think he kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. But I'm of, of the mindset generally of a more is better than fewer in the Hall of Fame. And I have no problem uh, with borderline guys getting in. I don't lose sleep over Jim Rice and Harold Baines being in the Hall of Fame. But when those guys do get in, it does make the case for a Kenny Lofton or a Lou Whitaker uh, much stronger. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And um, just one more thing on Whitaker. I think uh, I think he's penalized a little bit for being a second baseman versus shortstop, which the Hall of Fame has always seemed to favor shortstops over second base or third base. And uh, I guess those positions should be paid somewhat of a premium, but not to the degree that you're keeping guys like Lou Whitaker out, as far as I'm concerned. I would agree. And, and I think another good test case coming up is Adrian Beltre. And I think because of the numbers we have at our disposal now, um, he he literally could be a unanimous choice. I don't think he will be, because I do think certain voters do hold that particular thing pretty sacred. Uh, but in terms of where you rank him among the all-time greats at third base. He's definitely in the top five. You could argue he might be in the top three or four and uh, should be an absolute, no doubt, 
90% plus guy the first year he is eligible, and I'd be shocked and horribly disappointed if he's not. Well, let's do some Cubs here. Now, obviously, there's always pressure to win, and I think it really started back in 2003 with the Cubs. You know, so you, you never heard boos. And then in 2003, you started to hear it in the, the Lou Pinella era, and now it's just, I would say, they expect to get to the playoffs. So there's always pressure to win. But if a team does not succeed this year, and it's just a, a, a bizarre season, it's like 75, 80 games, maybe even less than that, how do you truly evaluate how your team performed if it's such a small sample? And and I just wonder how a general manager could look at a team and say, all right, I had 80 games. It's time to make wholesale changes. Great question. You know, and, and until we know how many games uh, will be played this year, it's hard to really specifically answer that. But I'll speak generally about windows and you know, the Cubs, when they opened that championship window in 2015, the expectation internally and externally would be that that window would be open for quite some time. But I think there are many windows. I think there was the Jake Arrieta window uh, that closed after 2017. Uh, and I think the next window is kind of the, the, the Chris Bryant window, which uh, is after 2021. Uh, it doesn't mean the Cubs can't be competitive after that, but it, it if there is a team out there that really needs to play this year, it's the Chicago Cubs because they they you know they won that uh, arbitration decision, so they had Bryant for two more years. Well, he's going to get full service time whether we have a season or not. And obviously, the Dodgers, if they don't get Mookie Betts at all this year, that hurts them. But we know on paper, even without Mookie Betts, the Dodgers are still the probably the best team uh, in baseball. So I, I think it's really important the Cubs play this season. And I also think there's a huge chip on their shoulders because they feel they severely underachieved last year, and they've got a new manager in David Ross. Um, but but an 84 win team last year felt like it 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 could have been a 90 plus win team, and they lost nine in a row down the stretch, including four straight heartbreakers against the Cardinals at Wrigley that basically knocked them out. So there's a lot of motivation here, and uh, I think there will be changes in the next year or two, regardless of how well this team plays. My my big concern with the Cubs would still be the pitching. I mean, Lester's not getting any younger. Uh, Darvish has had a, I think, an interesting career. I think earlier in his career, you looked at him, you say superstar. Now I think he's a guy that you just hope stays healthy, can be a number two or three starter. Hendricks, had a, had a, he had a great season, that World Series season. Quintana has a history. I don't see the guy, though, that you can roll out against Strasburg and... Scherzer. I don't, I don't see the guys in this rotation that you could roll out against Bueller and Kershaw. So uh, this starting pitching, is it a weakness? And what's the ceiling there? It just to me, it looks like it needs something else. I, I would say this. I think as constituted, it's a good rotation, not great. But the bigger issue for me is the lack of depth. Uh, because of the age, as you mentioned, Lester and Quintana have both been, as you guys know, incredibly durable. Um, can you count on that? Now, in a shorter season, theoretically, you can. However, if you lose one of those guys, that could be absolutely devastating. The big issue I see is that beyond the five, and I include Tyler Chatwood as uh, kind of the nominal number five starter, he basically had been given the job in spring training. Uh, 
if any of those guys get hurt and you've got to go six, seven, eight starters deep, to me that's where the big issues lie for this team. And I know that happens for a lot of clubs around baseball, but the, the margin for error is pretty small. Uh, and, and in terms of matching up against the elite, I mean, Darvish stuff-wise and what he did in the second half last year, if he does, that, if he's that guy, yeah, I'm fine putting you Darvish against those guys. But how about the highest walk rate in baseball before the All-Star break and the lowest after? I think we're all trying to figure out which you Darvish is going to appear in 2020. Is it going to be the first half Darvish or second half? If it's the guy we saw the last three months of last year, he is the no-doubt ace of this team, and he would be your guy for game one of any playoff series. Len, I'm absolutely fascinated with uh, Javi Baez because he's like a, a, a ball player who would look great on like a 1960s baseball card. But then he also looks great on your modern baseball cards because his wins above replacement numbers are, are fantastic. But then you look at what started this whole sabermetric era thing and his on-base percentage is just not there. Other than that, he's he's a great ball player. I mean, he, he finished with 5.8 war in 2018 and was second in MVP and then had even more wins of replacement in fewer games last season. Uh, what is it like calling games, watching him play? Because to me, he's one of the most exciting guys in baseball and somebody who could really break that mold, winning an MVP with the lower end on base percentage. Well, because I watch him every day, I'm biased and I, I call him the most exciting player in the game. And, you know, all due respect to, to Mookie Betts and Mike Trout, I don't see those guys quite as much. But I think Baez and Fernando Tatis Jr. are the two guys I think about when it comes to athleticism, doing things that other people can't do. Uh, and the fact that they're shortstops, I think, allows them to show off that ability quite a bit. Uh, he's a fascinating player. Joe Madden's philosophy when he managed him was don't manage him. Let him do what he wants to do. He thinks the game incredibly well. He's a very smart base runner. Uh, has stolen home a few times in big situations, including uh, postseason in 2016. Uh, he's just not afraid. And, and that's the thing I appreciate the most about Javier Baez. If you had to pick one kind of description or adjective about him, uh, you know, he's called El Mago, right, the, the magician. I think the lack of fear in any game situation is really remarkable. And, you know, more guys... I think would like to be that way, and they marvel at the fact that he doesn't ever seem to be bothered by any situation. I don't think you can teach it, and uh, he's got it uh, at the highest level you could ever want. Uh, I've seen a lot of great players uh, over the last two decades of covering this game on a daily basis, and uh, in, in terms of the intangibles he brings to the ballpark, he might be right at the top for me. Yeah, do you think that that fact that, you know, he has no fear is something that contributes to the fact that he just doesn't walk? I mean, he's, his career high was 30. And given all that, he, he's still like a Vlad Guerrero type up there. He, For today's standards, he doesn't strike out all that much, about one a game. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is a little bit of a – not only can you not throw the ball past me, but you, you where no matter where it is, I will figure out a way. And he does – very often get into swing mode with two strikes and a lot of times just essentially telling the pitcher, um, you, you know, throw it wherever you want. I'll, I'll foul it off at the very least. Now, having said that, I, I think he walked like eight or nine times in spring training. I mean, we were laughing during March. You know, he, he, 
in the first like four games of spring training walk more than he did in like five months in terms of a calendar month last year. So I don't know if that meant he was changing things or if it was just, I, I want to see more pitches. That's the one part of his game that that's below average. And, you know, I think maturity over the course of time may slowly start to do that a little bit more. But is he a guy who's going to walk 80 to 100 times a season? I'd be totally shocked if that ever happens. He's got to hit for a high average. You know, I think he's got to be kind of a minimum 275 guy to really have a monster uh, regular season. But, you know, he's going to probably hit you 30 home runs, steal 20 bags, uh, and, and, and be your best base runner, best base stealer, all of those things. And um, as I said, I think there's a lot of value he brings way beyond just what he does at the plate. Yeah, I mean, forget about it. If he upset on base percentage, he's absolutely going to win an on, uh, MVP award. And then you have Chris Bryant, who obviously has won an MVP award. Do you see any chance that the Cubs would move him at this point still, or do you think they're holding tight with him? Guys, I got to tell you, because of the, the the financial situation, not just the Cubs, just in all of baseball, I think as you look ahead to 2021, uh, I, I really wonder what payrolls are going to look like. And there may be some small market clubs. Who knows? Maybe they cut their payroll in half. I mean, we just do not know the economic impact. I mean, we know there will be an impact. Uh, the commissioner, I think, yesterday basically said that what happens this year will affect next year. Um, so, yeah, if, if, if there is a season and somehow you're not in playoff contention, is there a trade deadline? Are you able to make trades, uh, depending on what the, the condensed schedule looks like? Um, I think everything is on the table. If the Cubs don't have the year uh, they wanted to have, if they believe they can bring in a big haul, I think everything is possible, and I don't believe there is an untouchable. And as a guy like Chris Bryant does near free agency, I think you have to consider all those options. And Mike Trout says he's not thrilled about the possibility of going to play baseball and just sitting in a hotel the whole time. And I wonder what your thoughts are, just some alternatives thrown out there, sitting in a hotel for 12 hours a day and then going to the ballpark, maybe even calling games remotely. We don't know what's going to happen, Len, but when you hear some of the, I guess, possibilities or the options, what do you think about those two things in particular? Well, I would say a couple of things. Number one, I will do whatever they ask us to do very gladly, uh, whether that's <laughs> call games uh, from uh, a monitor in a studio or be in Arizona or Japan or wherever it is. Um, uh, however, if you're asking me my preference, uh, I would want to be at the ballpark. I, I think that would set a bad precedent, especially if these games essentially are for a television audience exclusively with no fans at the park. I do believe uh, broadcasters being in the actual ballpark um, is going to enhance uh, that broadcast. It's not easy to call a game off a monitor when you can't actually see the rest of the field that's not being shot by whatever camera is on uh, the air at that moment. Um, but again, I'll do whatever they ask. The second part of this is, ultimately, it may come down to a very small group of players whether or not we play this season. Mike Trout, Justin Verlander, uh, Clayton Kershaw, uh, the aforementioned John Lester, guys with 15-plus years in the big leagues who have all the money they'll ever need. They don't really need to have a salary coming in this year, and they may decide, you know what, it's not worth spending 
maybe five months away from our families. I would totally respect that opinion if it exists, but I do believe every time you get into situations like this, and I would include a lot of the uh, collective bargaining agreements and a lot of the walkouts and strikes and those types of things, just talking to some former players about all of this, they believe that in the history of baseball, for the most part, it's the guys with the biggest names and the, the biggest salaries who really do lead the rest of the union. So I would pay particular attention to the opinions of guys like Kershaw, Trout, Verlander, uh, to name some others, and kind of get their temperature. And if they want to do this, I think it'll happen. If they don't want to do this, I, I hate to say it, but we, we may not have a season at all here in 2020. Mm. And that's fascinating, especially for the guys that might be making. Now, listen, you make it a half a million dollars minimum salary. You still make it a really good salary, but you know the window for you to make that money is not that big. So that would be fascinating in its own right. I, I do want to go back real quick to your career. As I talked about before, I grew up going to Wrigley. I remember uh, I was there watching Harry, and then his grandson comes in, and I actually remember. It probably maybe it was an opening day. I don't remember the exact game, but I remember you starting your career off. I believe it was with Brenly, right? Was that That's maybe right. 05 or 405? 2005. Yep. And I said, "Who the hell is this guy?" You know, I've had <laughs> I've had carries my whole life, and then like anything else, you start getting more familiar with the person, and all of a sudden, you feel like you know the person. And I just wonder if you remember how you were received by the fan base right when you came on board and the connection that you have all these years later? Well, I knew it would happen the way it did. It has to, right? And I think Chicago in particular, it's a very loyal city. It's a very loyal community. And if they feel you're an outsider, it takes a while for you to earn their trust. That's the way I understood it coming in. Um, The good thing about our game is that you do it every single day. And you become essentially uh, uh, an addendum to people's families because you're in their household for three hours a day. Uh, so I just I tried to focus on the job I did, kept my head down, tried to block out the noise. Uh, of course, I heard of all of those things. Who who are these guys? You know, they're they're not the guys I'm used to. I don't like them. Um, but you know, it's, it toughens your skin a little bit and this is the big leagues and you know, you, you got to hear the good and the bad. So it, it, you know, I wouldn't say it never bothered me. Uh, of course I'm a, I'm a human being, but I also understood that that came with the territory. And then, you know, even if you feel quote unfairly maligned early on, you probably get too much credit after a certain amount of years. And there are days when I'm not happy with my performance, but I think most people watching probably don't notice the difference because they're used to my delivery and used to my voice. So, you know, I feel different every day, but it probably sounds very similar to everybody. And and, and I do think it is a game where, you know, that, that longevity and that durability and that uh, familiarity, it, it all makes people feel comfortable when they hear that voice. So I don't take it lightly. Uh, It means a lot to me when people do tell me that I'm a part of their family in some small way. And I can't believe it's been 15 going on 16 years because in a lot of ways it feels like the the snap of my fingers. And in some other senses, it feels like I've been here my entire adult life. We've raised our son here. He essentially grew up here and uh, it's our home and will be until they tell us not to be here. 
letting you say it, uh, a lot of times you hear people say, you know, you're like part of their family. And I'll tell you from uh, my perspective, my point of view, uh, you've been a large part of my uh, career in the early going. I guess I'll, I'll call it that because that's that's my end goal is to make baseball a career. And two of the most common texts that I get in season from friends or uh, from just people I've met around the game or, hey, either Tom McCarthy just read something that you put out there on air or Len Casper read something you put out there on air. <laughs> and uh, first of all, I want to thank you for doing that and including me as a small part of your work. But then I'm going to put you in the spot a little bit here. And um, one of the cooler things that you had done for me is um, a friend of mine who's a career Marine who had heard you mention something that I shared with you on the air. You then went ahead and um, went above and beyond to uh, make contact with a guy and, you know, invite him out to see a Cubs game or something. And uh, I just, um, I don't know, what, what makes you feel the need to help out somebody like me or do something like that for somebody you'd never even met before? Well, that's nice of you to say. I actually heard from the other Ryan uh, a couple of days ago, which was nice. Um, number one, on, on the credit part of it, I had the same conversation with Rob Nyer the other day. And, uh, you know, of course I want to give credit. You know, I can't do it all the time, everything I read. But if I have a, a great stat that you devised or you came up with it, of course I'm going to mention, uh, you know, who came up with that stat. And, I, I think more knowledge, more information is a good thing. And with social media these days, if I mentioned Ryan Spader on, on, on a broadcast and you get 10 or 20 more followers, that makes them all smarter about the game. I, I, I think that's good for everybody. That's number one. And then the other part is, you know, I do understand the power of the position I hold. It has nothing to do with me personally as much as it does the fact that when someone says the the voice of the Chicago Cubs on television, that does have impact. And if you can use that in good ways and make people feel really good, the one thing I have learned over the course of time is stuff doesn't matter quite as much as experiences do. And if you can invite someone up to the booth for five or ten minutes before the game to take some pictures where Harry Carey once sang the seventh inning stretch or shake somebody's hand outside a ballpark on the road, uh, who just simply wanted to say hi, uh, that means so much to people. And I enjoy meeting new people. Uh, it is not a burden on me at all. And uh, I'm happy to do those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I think especially now going through what we are as a country uh, and being a part, uh, I think it's even more important to, to, to be available and to do those things as much as I possibly can. Well, uh, Len, I actually just finished up my um, time in the Marines. And my intention was to visit a bunch of the ballparks and a bunch of the people who have been so kind to me like yourself. So I'm really hoping um, we have some baseball. So you at least let me buy you a beer sometime to make up for all you've done for me uh, to include coming here, speaking to me and holding for a little bit. Uh, we really appreciate it. Happy to do it. And uh, I'm going to take you up on that beer. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it's gonna you. It's going to be in Japan. So you better get your Sapporo's ready. <laughs> That's right. I'm all over it. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all into the sake. Yeah, if you leave now, uh, Spader, your canoe is going to get there by the time we start playing baseball. So congratulations, <laughs> buddy. Let, thanks so much for the time, man. We do appreciate it. You got it. All right, so thanks to Len for that. There's so many things we just went down, Spader, but real quick on the Cubs. want to get your thoughts on them if we do play this year. Again, I think the biggest issue that they have is going to be in their starting pitching. Lester's not getting any younger. Darvish has kind of been an enigma. 
Uh, Jose Quintana had a nice first half with the White Sox a couple of years ago. He hasn't been the same guy. I'm concerned about their rotation. Yeah, honestly, I think their biggest blow is losing Cole Amels because he's a no longer number one starter. It's no secret, but he's absolutely a piece in there that's dependable and gives you great outings and uh, gets you between those number one, number two guys to the back end of the rotation. So I think losing him was a major blow, and I'm surprised, given what Atlanta signed him for, that nobody else was able to offer that up. Obviously, the Cubs had payroll constraints. Uh, we went over that with the Chris Bryant stuff. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to be kicking themselves now because they didn't deal him. But uh, I guess, as Len said, you know, it's entirely possible they still could do so. Yeah, and the other thing on this, and that's why I asked Len about, you know, a shortened season and how you evaluate things. Theo Epstein said, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my evaluation throughout the first half, and if it's not there, we're going to make changes. So this could be the end of the window for the Cubs. And I will say this, you still won a World Series, but I would call it, I wouldn't call it a failure because they went out and broke the the biggest sports curse that I have ever seen, uh, bigger than the Red Sox. But to only get to one World Series to me would be a disappointment. How about you? Well, it's kind of how I feel about the, and I hate to bring it back to my uh, Phillies. beloved Phillies all the time, but that's how I feel about the team in 08, 09, 10, 11. I mean, the best team of all of them was 2011. They won 102, 103 games, and then uh, were knocked out by the Cardinals in the uh, NLDS. Um, and t- to be honest, Cliff Lee didn't show up in that series. Roy Halladay lost the final game. I think he tossed a complete game, giving up one run only in the first inning, and they got nothing. Um, but that's how I feel about that team. Uh, I'm glad they won it in 08, but overall, that dynasty that could have been those four aces, it, the whole thing was a disappointment. Yeah, I think we could say that just about a lot of teams. You know, the Mets, the mid-80s Mets, 85, 86, they won the World Series, didn't make it in 87, got upset by the Dodgers, the team they'd beaten 10 of 11 during the season. They got upset in 88 in the NLCS. 89, they didn't make it. By 90, they had to break it up, so... You know what? That might be kind of fun. As no baseball continues, we could talk about the dynasties that should have been. And I think right there, those are two teams. And the Cubs, unfortunately, might fall into that again because on paper, the Dodgers are still the best team in the National League. How many other teams would you put ahead of them? Uh, the head, ahead of the Cubs? Or Atlanta? The would you put Atlanta there? Uh, I think you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Atlanta would be another one. So it, it's unfortunate, but I think the Cubs... Even if they play 100 games this year, I think they're going to have a hard time uh, getting into the playoffs, and that's unless they expand it even more and you know, we have more teams getting in. All right, we promised that we would share a winner uh, from our Apple Podcast five-star review and mention your favorite walk-off ever. Uh, ever. So who wins? Uh, I'm going to go through this live so we know that I'm not bullshitting, and we'll, we'll pick – the walk-off that is okay. the best. Are you going to read all 31? Because I don't want to Oh, read damn. 31. We got 31. Good on us. Yeah, uh, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll go to three random ones. Double our okay. listeners, which is fascinating. Oh, so here's the first one. You ready? Yeah. Best walk-off. Rip Griffin. Best walk-off has to be the 1993 World Series Game 6 when Joe Carter hits the series-winning home run for the Toronto Blue Jays. Rip, get bent. They beat the Phillies. No, you're not His winning. His name was Rip. 
Griffin, not the guy that played in the World Series. No, Joe Carter hit the home run. There you go. Let's go with another one. Uh, personal favorite walk-off Cubs, Alfonso Soriano, in July 2009 at Wrigley Stadium against the Dodgers. That's Did he a call it Wrigley Stadium? Uh, he said at Wrigley. Excuse me. I threw okay. it at the stadium. You're at, the idiot that's yeah. at stadium. All right, uh, next. Uh, a Breezy 615. Uh, given we just had Len, we'll say that that guy's winning so far. How many more you want to go through? I mean, I was fine with the winner, but let's do four mm-hmm. more. Okay. Favorite walk-off, Rick Glidden. Uh, I'm probably butchering all these guys' names. as Dan I Gladden? Uh, no, Rick Glidden. And we got a Robert <laughs> Andino helping knock the Red Sox out of playoff contention in 2011. Uh, I still go with the Soriano one, given we just had our, okay. uh, our guy Lynn. Okay. Uh, this one is from T. Walker, 2511. Almost as much, uh, love the new pod, almost as much as I loved watching Derek Jeter walk off his final game at Yankee Stadium with a patented hit between first and second base. T. Walker get bent, Derek Jeter gets too much credit as is. Um, oh, that's a horrible thing to say. The great Derek <laughs> Jeter? You're going to rip Derek Jeter? All right, next. All right. Uh, Two more. Tim Flattery. The greatest walk-off in baseball history is not Thompson or Fisk or Dent or even Carter. Uh, it is Kirby Puckett in Game 6 of the 1991 World Series. I was there. How you, you going to beat that? tomorrow night. How you going to beat that? All right, that's going to be our winner that's, so far. I was far. there, man. Come on, what's the last one? You know, not only did he hit the home run, he also made the catch to, to stop the Braves from taking the lead late in that game. So, all right, what else? All last right, one. The Puckett one's going to be our winner so far. And then this last one, I'll go with the very first one since they at least deserve a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the baseball expert, uh, Brian Dozier's walk-off versus the Tigers in 2015 to cap off a seven-run ninth-inning win uh, will always be my all-time favorite. He deserved to be an all-star that year and gave Minnesota our first good season in a very long time. I'm going to go with the Puckett. Yeah, Gotta Puckett. Go with Puckett. So who's uh, the winner? What's his name? Tim Flattery. Tim Flannery? No, Flattery. Oh, Flattery. Like, I was going to say Tim Flannery was a player. Yeah. Well, we got <laughs> Tim. Tim is our winner. All right. Well, congratulations for winning the copy of MLB The Show. I know you're giving away books. Um, so it's going to be good. It's good. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Follow Ryan on Twitter at the Ace of Spader, S-P-A-E-D-E-R. And I'm at Holden Radio, and we'll catch you on Thursday.